Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Thank you. I do get very nervous. I get, I almost get sick in my stomach. It's not so bad. Everybody thinks I'm so uh, confident, but uh, but it's been a privilege to um, sort of do do this study because it's stuff that's mattered to me for a long time, and uh, the questions I've been asking over my lifetime, in a sense, it's been nice to actually do some research. Now, who wasn't here last week? Oh, okay. So I'm going to recap a bit, but I can't recap too much, else otherwise we won't. It is online, but just so that you're <clears throat> on the page for us moving forward. Um, sorry, I'm all gloopy. Isn't he lovely? Uh, okay, so what, how we started was with the question, um, getting to grips with the Bible, uh, what is this book? Um, I was thinking today that was the most stupid title, because... Um, even trying to get to grips. Grips sound as though it's something that finally we'll be able to hold. And I'm thinking, it's slipping out of my hands even as I'm studying. So that wasn't a good title. Um, and uh, we, we talked about um, the, the question followed with, how has it become what it's become? And in order to, you know, sort of break down some of that, we put some things on the board and I'll sort of whip through it very quickly. Because basically... Um, what started as lots of different books written by lots of different authors to cover many different subjects um, about political, geographical, sociological, religious, put all the names in there at different times over a 1500 year period, they all get crammed suddenly between two bookends called a book rather than books. And what makes it even more uh, difficult is the word holy gets slapped in front of it to make it incredibly sacred um, in order to um, support what, it, what is said here. The um, newly emerging church, uh, which came about in the third century, uh, well, not came about, but the, the canon came about in the third century, um, where these books were correlated together to support um, what was called the Christian canon. Now, canon, I think it's on there as well, means measuring stick. So we find that this, which was books, but now became a book, be also becomes a measuring stick to say what is right and wrong about the particular faith. And instead of it being lots of writers like I said, it becomes lots of writers, but, but uh, sorry, becomes one writer, i.e. the Holy Spirit being the one who's overseeing it all. And then we come up with words like infallible, inerrant. Now, infallible means that it's, it's incapable of any wrong. Well, you think to yourself, how on earth did anybody come up with that word? Um, inherent means similar, without errors. Inspired's good. I like inspired, if I can find it. Um, if I can find it on here, I'm just going back. Of extraordinary quality, as if arising from some external creative impulse. Now, I like that. I think that's great. Because that really does give a good description of what it's, what it's about. So that gives you a little bit there. Now, as I in my introduction last week was making it very clear this is not to tear down anything but it's actually to give insight into what a thing really is and support and defend what it really is rather than defending and supporting what it isn't and I think that might have, have helped in that, that illustration. So then we talked, is that enough to say about that? Is that enough do you think? Because otherwise you know it'll just take uh, too long. So then we, we came to this bit, uh, and by the way, Kev did the most awesome drawing. Um, we were going to see if, we, if maybe as we talk, he 
could do his drawings on the screen, but I think that might put a bit of pressure on him. But um, if you want to get old at that, I, when I looked at it, I thought, heck, well, if that's what he heard, it wasn't too bad then, because, I mean, that gives me a little bit of hope that what he heard was, you know, uh, was okay. We talked about the sources of where the writings came from. Now, if you think, we're actually talking about specifically at this point, the first five books of the Bible, which are classed as the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. And we find out from very, very good sources, people who have got PhDs in ancient writing and, um, and uh, ancient Hebrew and, and, and languages, that basically it's made up of these sources, the Eloist, the Deuteronomist, the Yahwist, and the priestly writers, and it's sort of more or less um, divided like this. Now, before we get to what these are, and I'm still recapping, um, you've got to also understand that, first of all, you've got your hand-me-downs, your oral traditions, so it's all been talked about, passed down as stories, until you get to a place where things actually start to be written down, which is where these come in, and often they are m many, many centuries after the thing was supposed to have happened. And then you've got your twists on them, because the ancient writers used to write sort of backwards in the sense that they would amend and modify and it almost feels as though it's like telling lies but I'm just telling you what they did and you'll, you'll find it if you if you do some research this is what ancient writers did because they would look back and think mm, I don't know if I like how that makes a sound so they'd modify it and instead of getting rid of the one that they didn't like they would put it alongside of it as a continuous um, record of what they have now come to believe as opposed to what they did then. Now with that in mind, and you've got this book with all this inside and you try to read it and you recognize you come across things that you think, well, that doesn't sound like that. And that doesn't sound like this. And it's because each of these are written at different times, but also each of them had an agenda because they were actually promoting in, in their time and space, what they wanted to get across. Now, again, I'm still on my uh, recap of, of last week. Eloists are the most ancient um, tradition. Yahwist sort of come sort of second. Um, then the Deuteronomists and the priestly writers are more or less the same time. Very much later on, uh, around the, the, the time of the kings, where they were they had access to what you would need to keep records and write lots of stuff down. So um, let's just sort of, again, I'm re recapping very quickly. The Eloist, as I said, it was a very ancient tradition, and we're going to look at that more deeply tonight. Um, but what we very briefly said about these, it was a time when... It's almost suggested that it was polytheistic in the sense of how, it's, how it writes and what they talk about. It was, yes, there was one God, but it, we weren't sure who he really was. And there was other gods on the scene. And it was a bit, bit interesting that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, the Yahwists, I think that's very clear who they are, because the Yahwists, they were absolutely pro-Yahweh, the God of Israel, and uh, it's very clear that anybody else who wasn't, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're going to be told a thing or two. The priestly writers, now that's really interesting because you can guess what their agenda was. It was making sure that they got over to everybody who basically was in and who was out because they had this basic theme to all that they did and it was this God or Yahweh cannot dwell with his people unless and so this unless was at the top of their agenda for sacrifices uh, cleanliness pure and impure uh, making sure everything was just right in order that God would dwell with his people, you see. So you can imagine 
tough times there. Do you reckon? Because I can't see how anybody would ever qualify and actually they didn't. And we're going to cover a lot of these separately, but I'm just giving you the recap. Then the Deuteronomists, very briefly, these were the, the group who way later on in, in, in the Bible history, um, they were the ones who made sense of the, the exiles of, of the Israelites. So for instance, when something bad had happened, like for instance, the Babylonians had come in and absolutely ransacked their, their city, you know, Jerusalem or Judah or whatever. And I know I'm giving you whatever, because we're not talking about it tonight. Is that okay? So this is brief. Um, and they were taken into exile and they might be there for so many hundred years. When they finally got out, the Deuteronomists would say, I know why we went into exile. It's because we weren't faithful to Yahweh. We were doing something wrong and we weren't following what the priest said. So they would really get on the backs of everybody else. And a lot of what you read in Deuteronomy is all about the tearing down, the tearing down, the tearing down, the tearing down. <sighs> yeah. Sounds a bit bible doesn't it? Don't you think it sounds bible I think so. And so that's what you've got with the Deuteronomists. They're the ones who, who, who are basically saying where it all went wrong. And um, I think that's my recap. Is that all right? So like I say, I would rather you have better information so that you can... If somebody says to you, for instance, oh, I, you know, I don't know what you're on about. You know, the Bible's just full of contradictions, instead of saying, no, there isn't, you can actually say to them, well, yeah, there probably is loads because it's been written by so many different people over so many periods of time and they're bound to be different because what was going on at the time was different, right? Now, remember, we're only talking at this moment about the Old Testament. We can apply similar things to the New Testament, but we aren't ready for that yet. So is that okay? So we might do that next year. <laughs> if I've got the energy. But anyway, so let me just uh, see if there's anything else I need to... Um... Oh, yeah, coming back just to the oral tradition, if you think about it, I don't know whether you've ever heard, there's the, the Torah, which is the, the Jewish Bible, and there's what's called the Talmud, and I don't know whether you, any of you are familiar with the Talmud. I find this really interesting because... The Talmud basically was what was the oral tradition of the, the Torah. Now, what was amazing was that never got written down for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was purposely not written down because what they wanted to do was always keep it so it could constantly evolve and develop and change. But then, of course, somebody decided it needs to be written down as well. So you've now got the Torah written down, the Talmud, which is what you would call the developing, discussed um, version of the Torah, is also written down. And what you find with it, it becomes like the closed canon again, because once the thing gets written down, it becomes unalterable. Have you ever thought about it? It's like people won't touch it while it's written down. And if that's what it says, that when actually everything is constantly changing, because of how people are changing and everything changes because of that and how we're evolving in every way. Our world has changed, uh, etc. which that's not what we weren't sort of talking about. But um, okay, question that was asked before we move on to this other thing, can I find it? Yeah, was um, did any of the original writers who had written scrolls ever imagine for one minute that where their little letter <laughs> that they'd written about their history would suddenly end up in this book, which Biblia is, is a Greek word, but is plural, but Latin pinched it, and it, it actually is singular in Latin. Did they ever consider that it would be used to support something that was happening just... <laughs> Further down the, you know, the, the annals of time. And you think, heck, did they ever consider that, that that's what would happen? Now, having said that, I do believe, like we said about it being inspired, that there is incredible inspiration there and we can f find truth. 
and, and I do believe what Rob Bell says is right, that we can find truth in everything. And, and, and I believe that in whether it's history as it happened or history how somebody decided to write it up, there is still truth to be found, even if it's just about humanity and their, their, the, the way that they are and the way that, that, that we live. So as I've been doing all this research, the one thing I do know is that what the Bible does for us is show us the messiness of humanity, <laughs> just straight away, the messiness of humanity and their desire to figure out stuff and how, what it can turn into if you're not careful because it does become very, very solid and strict and immovable and that's, and we mentioned last week about every book that has got it slapped on either sacred or holy, it becomes something that people become very defensive of and usually it isn't in a loving way, it's usually in a very violent way, isn't it? So we want to get away from that. So is that all right for a wrap up? How long did that take? For goodness sake. All right. Okay. So where we're going to try and uh, look at is this, this Eloise sauce. And uh, again, if I was to go into every acute detail of it, we would just be here forever. So what I've tried to do is, is take the, the, the major bones of it just to give you a, a, an idea. Um, and, you know, I, I just hope you'll find it interesting. Um, the, it's, it, when I think of the term God of Israel, it bothers me a bit because um, I'm glad that we've sort of adopted a new phrase and we talk about the God of Jesus. And we have, haven't we? I mean, if anybody's been around here for long enough now, we talk about the God of Jesus and we even talk about the, um, the ungodlike God because what we've said that if, Je if Jesus is the exact rep representation of the Father, then what we see in Jesus, if we're not seeing it in these other examples, we've got to say, hang on a minute, is that, and, and this is where it gets really very, uh, what's the word, um, controversial, because you're actually questioning whether what is written here is representative of Jesus. And, you know, the, you'll, we'll find when we get on to this here, the Yahwist, which is actually what you would say is the major influence of Western Christianity, that gets really quite scary for me because the, they're all together now in that book, sort of balancing each other in a sense, but this one's got the loudest voice. And this, this is the one that Western Christianity embraced. And we'll, we'll cover that in a few weeks. But, you know, I'll, uh, I'll charge you a hundred quid at the door to come in by the time we've done, the, done all the research for it. But anyway, we start with, with this, this uh, Eloist here. I'm just going to read something as a, as a bit of a, a background and then we'll, we'll get cracking. Um, it comes from the word Elohim. And actually, Elohim is plural for gods. It's not God, it's actually gods. And so... It, it, in itself, it's representative of God, plural, uh, right in the beginning. So Elohim to the ancient writers, though monotheistic in their understanding of a supreme God and creator, also viewed the pantheon of supernatural beings created by and in the presence and at the service of the Almighty One as gods consistent with the sum. Sumerian worldview of religious thought. Now, the Sumerians are up, really up north, Bab Babylon, Syria, Assyria, it, it's all sort of around there. Um, so you get the idea of, it's a mixture of that. It's coming from there. Um, Yahweh Elohim, which, that's the Yahweh bit here, but then we're back up here. Um, the manifestation of Elohim to mankind was viewed by the Hebrew thought as reflective of the one God. Yet the message and visual imagery came many times by emissaries sent by the direct charge of the Elohim, which was this 
group of gods overall. Um, that they, the angelic beings created in the higher dimensions who serve next to the creator God, would at times be viewed as God and was not inconsistent with Hebrew thought. Now, I hope that was slow enough for you to get. So basically what we're saying is, although they had like a one God, there were other gods that came on this one God's behalf. So that's the basic thing behind Elois. So then we get into this. Biblical evidence suggests that Yahweh and El, which of course is Elohim, so El, Elohim is plural, El is the supreme God over the gods, um, were variously viewed as the same deity on several occasions, while in a few rare instances as two distinct deities. Uh, but scholar, scholarly evidence um, for the claim that early Israelites actually worshipped El as Israel's God and that Yahweh eventually usurped El's characteristics and domain through a process of assimilation. Now that's big, isn't it? So I'm going to get to some examples in a bit, but basically what we're saying here, if I put it into Chris', Chris language, here we have the idea that there is one supreme God called El, and he presides over a assembly of lesser gods, right, who work at his bidding. They're not the full God, <laughs> but they're, they're under him, and they come down. And so in, in various scriptures like, you know, the angel of the Lord, we never sort of have a, a study of that and say, who's that? But in the Eloist idea, it's one of them. Does that make, make sense? But like it's saying is, whether it's clear from scripture, whether they are one, Yahweh and El is one and the same, or whether they are different, is questionable because you can find evidence in the scriptures that show both, right? Just, just telling you how it is. And I'll give you those um, uh, illustrations in a minute. Um, and the fact that when you get down to this, the Yahweh's, it's definite that whether it was or it wasn't, it's suddenly been assimilated anyway into the one God, i.e. Yahweh. So I'm just going to ask you, did that make sense? Did you get that? Sort of. Some of it. Okay. So in, early, in earliest tradition, which is this, and it, it goes back a long, long time, these Elohists speak of an ancient world where El is the high God, and they remember El as the patron God of Israel. And what happens is that the Deuteronomist Yahweh and the priestly writers sort of get with it in a sense. They, 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 or they decide they disagree and they come in later with their counter-narrative or they support it. So for instance, the priestly writer liked the assimilation of this idea, but the, some of these didn't. And they said no. So for instance, the Yahweh disagree with any of this in the first place. They said, no, Yahweh has always been there right from the beginning. But in fact, what we'll see, and again, I'm always jumping ahead, you'll find that according to the Elois, Yahweh doesn't come on the scene at all. And if you look at the scriptures, you'll never find Yahweh's name until Moses. So as far as Elois is concerned, Yahweh doesn't come on the scene until Moses. But as far as the Yahweh is concerned, he comes on the scene in Genesis chapter th 3, in the context of the fall. So can you see how they differ? Shall I sit down? <laughs> Carry on. Okay, so here's another thing that's interesting. These weren't always, their view wasn't always um, uh, liked, and therefore it was, it, it was missed out of the... Um, the collections for quite a while and it was only added in later to say it was ancient you'd think it was it would be in there first but in fact it wasn't they brought it in later on and for this reason in an attempt to moralize listen to this to moralize the 
characteristics of Yahweh in the Yahweh's story. Now, do you know what the word moralize means? It means to reform the character and conduct of. Now, what you find is, and again, I'm having to jump a little bit. You find that the view of God here and the view of God here, let's just say this is harsh and this is a much softer view of God, right? And therefore, they bring this in in order to make that one look a lot more pleasing. Does that make sense? So that's why this was added. Even though it was written much earlier, they brought it back in to, to balance it all out. So ancient texts present Israel's God, which is Yahweh, in a shocking light. He's offensive. Many writers wrote later to soften those images, and that's when they brought in the Eloist idea. For this reason, the Yahwistic God, and we mentioned this last week, is anthropomorphic. Pomorphic, which sounds really brilliant in a big word, but what it means is he's very human, he's very hands on, and we would say, Well, that's brilliant, that's what we've been taught that he is, and it, it is, it's great. But if you think about it, that means he's very emotional, and yes, it's brilliant. Again, stay with me. But what do we hear most about in the Yahwistic text but Yahweh's anger? So anger, 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 anger is here. But in the Eloist, you see, he has a, these have a totally different understanding of their early idea of God. He's not as anthropomorphic as uh, the Yahwistic uh, God. And we, again, and we'll come to the Yahwist a lot later, but I'll give you just enough to, to get by. Uh, according to these, what makes L, which is of course, comes from Eloise. Um, the high God is that he actually has no form. You see, where one is very human, the other is he doesn't have a form. And he's actually always talking from heaven in a voice or through an angel or through a wind or through a dream. Or, you know what I mean? Can you, can you get the picture? So this one here, it's much more removed from the people, and yet a softer version which tries to balance out this one. So what we've got to ask the question is where does this L come from? Now, um, I don't know, I'm probably moving too far ahead, but you've got Abraham as one character which helps a lot in the understanding of how influences very much... Um, affect a, a, a place and a time because you've got Abraham who came from Ur which was up there in Mesopotamia area who came down having heard the voice of God which of course the Elohists don't say is Yahweh it's El that is <laughs> heard and if you look at the scripture you'll find nowhere does it say it's Yahweh it, and I'll get to some examples in a, in a minute um, what you've got is this person coming out of a, a land which had its own culture, its own creation story, it had its own uh, religion, it had its own everything, and he's coming down into this area with his stuff, his ideologies and his, his thoughts, and he's also then mixing in the, the northern area of which is more Canaanite land and the Canaanites are what are influencing also the people who are up there with their religions and their views. So you can see that there's, a, there's an evolution even with uh, Abraham who sets off on this journey on a word from God to go and claim a land but also doesn't even know the God particularly that supposedly has called him because he's, he's got a background of his own and he's, he's, he's having to work it all out as he goes along because this is just all, all new and by faith. So there's lots of Canaanite and Mesopotamian influences and many older cultures as well as established theologies, laws and rituals that Israel get the start to borrow. They borrow 
And of course, you've got your exiles, which later take place. But you find that, uh, and I mentioned it last week, that even the understanding of Satan didn't even come into the text until they were actually faced with, with a, another culture's belief, which, let's say, they were in Babylon and they had a, a god that was responsible for all the bad stuff that went on. Suddenly, they'd might, they've decided, oh, well, we need somebody who represents that, and so they create one for themselves. So it's all very much an evolution that's, that's taking place. And until Israel fully separated from its Canaanite, roots, Yahweh, this, according to the Elohist, Yahweh was just one of the many gods on this pantheon of other gods who were the emissaries that would just come down this, this, that and the other. So the Elohists um, have this view of this time prior to what is this, this, this Yahweh period. So, um, before the exclusive worship of Yahweh came, much later, we've either got Yahweh and El being the same, we've either got El being the high God with Yahweh as one of his lesser gods, or we've got, which did I do? I've done two and I can't remember which, which two I did. So they're either the same, they're either separate, and then you get the assimilation of them being the same at the end. Does that make sense? I hope so, because I've just lost where I am in my list. Anyway, um, so the Elohists seem to write up God of the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as El, rather than Yahweh as God of the Mosaic era. Because according to scripture, Yahweh only turns up. And I'll show you the scripture where he turns up and he says, I'm Yahweh with Moses. He hasn't done that in any of this time before. And now you can either trust me on that, or I'll tell you what, you can go and do a whole bunch of research. All right? And I mean, I'm, I just read and I do a lot of research, and I have to sometimes take the words of people who have got more brains than I have. So, but you can always go and have a look, can't you? So here's the point. North and south, you've got the Yahweh in the south, You've got the worship of El in the north and this suggestion that they finally merged when Israel got its full identity as a nation and basically decided that they were going to take Israel, uh, uh, Yahweh as their national deity. But up until that time, it was very, very different. So where am I now? Okay. So did an assimilation take place? I think this is what I've just said. Did they coexist separately or are they one or the same? They're the three, aren't they? Okay, so I mentioned about God um, coming to Moses and in, uh, sorry, missed something here. In Exodus chapter six, verse three, it says this. God said to Moses, he says, and I appeared unto Abram, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but my, by my name, Jehovah, or that's just another English vers version of Yahweh. So don't get confused. Because, I mean, these, all these names, don't they confuse everybody? Who's this? Who's that? Yahweh and Jehovah are just um, an English version of the same, same name. Um, but he's saying, I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name of Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now that suggests then that we have the same person, God Almighty being El the Most High, and he's saying, I appeared to them as this, but I'm appearing to you as Yahweh. Can you see? I'm just telling you what it says. That's, you know, it's there. So you look. <laughs> and then, of course, we've got things like in Numbers 23, 22, it talks about... Um, El being the deliverer of Egypt. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're already into Moses and the deliverance out of Egypt, you, you, it should be basically Yahweh that's delivered them. But in fact, the word that's used there is, is El. Now what's really interesting about um, uh, names in the Bible is that they actually represent, um, at the time, the God who was being 
worshipped. Um, now, I mean, that's, we wouldn't do that today, would we? Put slap names on our children um, of, of like that. But it was very important. So any name that had L on the end represented the fact that they worshipped L, the Most High God. Just, it was just a fact. And so when you hear things like what I mentioned last week, that Israel, uh, the name that was given to Jacob, from which the nation was birthed, is actually not Yahwistic, it's actually Elohist, because basically, and I'll get, get to it in a, in, a, in a minute, when Jacob actually changes his name, he comes to Jacob as I am El Elyon, I am God Most High. And that's the name that he comes with. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't one and the same, but this is what's going on in, in the story. You've got these, this, this different thing going on. So it's suggested then by the Eloists, and I keep going on like this, I know, but uh, that there's this different um, God recognized as the uh, most high God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's look at who was El then, and this is where it gets really quite... Ooh, a bit scary in a sense, because El was actually the sovereign deity of the Canaanite pantheon. So the gods that they served in, in Canaan, I mean, this just blows my mind. Because Canaan, if you think about it, when we get to the Yahweh story, guess who he's telling needs, everybody needs to be killed it's all the Canaanites. Now, that's interesting to me because it's almost like in order just to put everything right, we'll make sure that anything to do with this is wiped out. I find that really interesting. Um, listen to what is... There's lots of extra biblical evidence for all of this. So this is not just Bible. There are things like what were found in the Ugaric... Uh, texts and things that have been found in archaeological sites. There's some incredible stuff that's been found that actually give weight to this understanding. And listen to what it says about El, who was this sovereign deity of the, 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 the Most High, the top dog, basically. Listen to this. He resides in and on a mountain. Oh, I wonder where we've heard that before. He's the father of the gods, his creator, eternal king, the kind, compassionate, and I mentioned this last week, he was known, his symbol was the bull. <laughs> um, and it says in Numbers that um, uh, El brought them out of Egypt because he, it is he that has the strength of an ox. And that's why we were talking about when the uh, children of Israel were actually making the golden calf. It wasn't so weird that they might have made the golden calf because they had previous history of the name of the God sim, sim, being the symbol of a bull. So it's not so silly, you know, it's, it's there. Um, another name for him, the ageless one, get this, lives in a tabernacle. Oh, that's interesting. His throne rests on cherubim. He is the God of blessing and covenants. And this is where it's interesting because I know I was brought up very much believing, and it, it might be right, I'm just throwing it out for you. Certain names like El Shaddai, which is God of, God of the mountain, or many-breasted one as we've been told, is actually the name of El Elyon, the God of the Canaanite pantheon, which is just so interesting. El Olam, God who is eternal. El Elyon, God most high. And so what it would appear, and I say appear, if this simulation is correct, by the time you get to Yahweh, it would appear that everything that was said of El is suddenly said of Yahweh. And as they choose their, the God that they're going to have, who is going to represent them, they actually take all the attributes of this other God, who, according to the Elohim, was the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they slap it all into this one character um, that is to become Yahweh. Now, that's if the simulation has happened. Don't know whether it has or not, 
But let's look at just some, um, some uh, examples. Um, in Genesis 35, 9, this is where God's got hold of Jacob and he's saying, now God, that's L, if you, and you can look, look this up if you want, um, said to him, your name is Jacob, but your name is not going to be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. Um, and he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. And that's actually El Elyon. He's actually saying, I am El Elyon. That's what he was being known to Jacob. Now, this is also what's interesting. By the time we get to the end of it, it says, and God went up from him uh, and talked to him. And uh, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon and poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. And you see, again, we've got an interesting fact, because I was always told that Bethel meant the house of God, but it actually is the house of El. And so it's very clear there that we've got a house of El. So God has come to Jacob as El Elyon. Bethel means house of El, and actually we know from um, just... Um, English verbs and whatever, that the actual name El is a proper name. It's not just generic for God. It's actually a name. Um, and then, of course, do you know what Israel means? It actually means may El preserve. Now, that's, to me, that's just very, very interesting, just in that one story. Now, again, listen to what we said. We said they may have been one and the same, or they may have been assimilated, or there may be two distinct, separate... Is, is, are you staying with me? I hope you are. Okay, so that's one example. Genesis 32, 31, we've got Jacob wrestles with El. <laughs> and he says, he sees El face to face and his life was spared. And he caught, the place where he was was called Peniel. El. <laughs> and names are very important, like I said. It, it, they, they're very much... Um, demonstrated who was the overarching influence at that time in, in, in their lives. Then we've got Isaac blesses Jacob in Genesis 28.3. Um, and who does he bless Jacob by? Through El Shaddai. That's Genesis chapter 28.3. Then you've got Jacob blessing Joseph by, this is in chapter 49.25, um, by L of your fathers, which is just, you know, this, we're talking about this is the period of the patriarchs up, up to the Moses era. So, another interesting thing, and I mentioned Abraham a little while ago. Can I just get a drink? <gasps> mentioned Abraham. Coming out of, uh, of Ur, which is the Mesopotamia with his own ideas and stuff. What you find as well is that these places that we understand that he stopped at on his journey are actually all cultic sites of El, Elion. So he, he stops at Haran, which was the centre of the, the, it's called the cult of sin, S-I-N. I don't think it's been in sin as in wrongdoing. It was just the cult of sin. Anyway, um, then he went to Shechem, which was the cult, cult site of Baal Berit. And each time an altar is built by these people, it's always to L. And the place is called something L. It's just, just very, very interesting. Um, in this Baal, Baal Berit actually means Lord of, of the Covenant. Isn't that interesting? Um, Bethel centered on El, the house of El. We've already talked about that. It's interesting in that story because you've got actually a Yahwist um, version of it, which talks about when he actually arrived in Bethel, um, he built an altar there, but according to their story, he consecrated it unto Yahweh. Now you think, oh, hello, what's going on here? Can you see how we've got different things going on? So... Um, then the next thing which is very interesting, and some of, the, some, some of you might just think, heck, I'm going home. 
But in Genesis 14, you have an incredible story of Melchizedek actually meeting Abraham. Now, I don't know what your background is, but I was always taught that Melchizedek, and it probably still is, was a picture of Jesus uh, because he was the priest with no beginning and no end. And, and it probably is a good picture. It's probably a good symbol. However, if you do some research, Melchizedek was actually the king of Salem, who Salem was actually the ancient name for Jerusalem. That's what that place was. It's not no prizes for that. Um, but he was also the priest of the most high God. And most high God is El. And you think, oh, heck, this... Now, I can find a way of making that amazing. I really can. We won't do it tonight, but I can make it amazing. But I'm not going to... And what happens is, is that El, the Most High God, is actually visiting with Abraham, and Abraham is recognizing him as El Elyon, which is really quite amazing. And he actually was a, Can he was a Canaanite priest. Hello. It's the Lord. Which one? That's a good one, isn't it? Which one? Yeah, which actually, I, I should have probably said that a, a while back. Because you see, if you look at this period, the Lord... Brilliant. That's fun. That's interesting. So Melchizedek is actually a Canaanite priest who is the priest to El, which is very interesting. Okay, um, so I mentioned last week another example, but this suggests that it's separate, that, that these deities are separate because in Numbers 23, we've got the story of Balaam and when I rushed over it quick last week, answers, are you re realizing that some people don't have a clue who Balaam is? Well, it don't really matter. It's the fact of this guy was told to go and curse somebody. That's all you need to know about that. And um, in the end, he, uh, he gets in a situation where some sort of angel or whatever stands in front of him. The, the donkey that he's on recognizes there's an angel in front of him. Balaam basically is blind as a bat, doesn't see it, so he's kicking his ass. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, to get the ass to move on. And of course, the ass turns around and talks to him and says, Stop kicking me. Are you an idiot? There's something in front of me here that, you know, that's the story. Is that okay? Because I can't really give you more than that. But the point is this, he says later on when he's asked, why haven't you cursed this group of people that I've asked you to curse? He says these words, how shall I curse whom El hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? So there we've got those two names coming in suddenly represented as two separate things. Come back to that in a bit. Then we've got Babel, which is interesting. Um, because in Genesis chapter 11, we've got the story of building the Tower of Babel. And just to give you a little bit of background on, on that, um, basically Nimrod, this guy, and if you look in, uh, uh, in an earlier chapter, it talks about Nimrod being a mighty warrior before the Lord. And it sounds as though he was really okay, but actually it wasn't because being before the Lord didn't mean that it was for the Lord. It meant before him. It meant against him. And actually Nimrod wasn't a good guy, right? And when he was building Babel, which was one of the original sites of Babylon, the great empire, he had this idea to do something which, uh, we're going to have to talk about this another time because this is just too big for tonight. But he decided to do something which in all honesty, really got 
the gods, the Elohim, very upset because they said to each other up there, we can't have this going on. Now, if somebody's building a tower, thinking, think about it. If you're building a tower, is God going to be upset over just somebody building a tower? There's got to be something going on that is, is more threatening. or There's got to be something happening. It can't just be. And I've heard it preached that, oh, but they were in unity. And when uni, people are in unity, there's such great strength and it's got to be stopped. Well, I would have thought it's the opposite. If you've got great unity, you don't stop people building because, blooming it, you're going to build something fantastic. But it's like the opposite's going on here. So Nimrod was doing something that I'm not quite sure about. I think I have an idea, but we'll look at that another time. But anyway, what the, how the story goes is that the Elohim got together and they said, right, we can't have this, so let's go down and just basically destroy what's going on and we will scatter the people. And that's where you've got Babel, the idea of everybody then got a different language. And... Um, it's interesting that the result of it's recorded by the Deuteronomists in Deuteronomy 32.8. And it, this was the result of the scattering. And it said this, when the Most High, El, <laughs> divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he sets, set the bounds of the people according to the number of now, this is where it's actually a wrong translation. In the, in the scripture, it says children of Israel. But actually, what it should say is the sons of God. Children of Israel is just plain wrong. It's actually the sons of God, meaning the sons of God in the Elohim, the other gods uh, there. And it says he separate. Now, according to the, the, the you know, the books that you can read, is that at that time it, it was divided into 70 nations. So it suggests the 70 lesser gods in this Elois thing. And uh, listen to what it says next, which is interesting. For the Lord's portion, that's Yahweh, is his people. Jacob, which is Israel, because remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel and out of him came the nation, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance, meaning Yahweh's inheritance. So basically the story goes that the reason why the Yahweh's come up with the idea that Yahweh becomes the God of Israel, because after Babel, the people were separated into groups and Yahweh chooses Israel as his people. Right now, I can tell you a little bit more here. So Yahweh is one of El's counsel, and again, that name's interesting because Yahweh it comes from a Canaanite word. <laughs> it's really interesting, which means to create. See, up to that point, it was El who was known as the Creator. All of a sudden, you've got Yahweh being called the Creator, and Jenny will probably understand this. It's the causative imperfect of a Canaanite Hebrew verb meaning to be. There you go. That's some English for you. So even the name Yahweh is actually, it's been brought from a Canaanite source. Again, think about it. Who are the Yahwehs ultimately going to wipe off the face of the earth? It was the Canaanites. I just find it interesting that. So Israel was... Yahweh's nation, but we've also got a scripture, and I don't, oh, have I not written it down? Oh, yes, I have. It's there. There's a, there's a, um, a scripture in Numbers 21 29, which talks about another one of the gods in El's council, was it was a god called Chemosh. Chemosh. And it talks about him being assigned to the Moabites. So you've got actual points where it's saying, look, this is what's going on. Also, you've got in Job, and I think I mentioned this a little last week, in this Eloise tradition, you've got Satan, too, being one of God's, not God's, El's counsel, 
Because when you've got the story of Job, the council, the assembly, were brought together and Satan was part of that council. So, it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Now, to sort of wrap this up a little bit, um, you've got to understand that by the time, and I've mentioned it already, by the time we get to these people, what seems to have happened is that everything that was attributed to El by the patriarchs has now becomes, has become Yahweh's. Even the assembly, and let me just go back a little bit so you don't get conf confused with this. Terms in scripture like sons of God, children of the Most High, assembly of the Holy Ones, the divine council, are actually all referring to El and this assembly of gods, according to these. Um, but by Jeremiah and Kings and Job, actually El's not in the picture anymore at all. And it's actually become Yahweh's assembly. Isn't that interesting? And then Joshua 22, 22, we've even got now the, the name El referring to Yahweh. And listen, it's very interesting because Joshua 22 says this, the God of gods is Yahweh. So it actually says El Elohim, Yahweh, but Y-H-W-H. So what it's basically saying is the, the simulation has taken place, it's happened, and we've now got the God of gods is Yahweh. Now, what might make you think that they are one of the same and just a, you know, an evolution from the old patriarchs to, to Yahweh. Is if you look at any place like Bethel, which was this cultic center of the Canaanites, there's never any talk about that being idolatry. Now think about it. How many times are, are the priests, especially in their writing, talking about tearing things down? But they never talk about tearing down Bethel or Peniel or these other places. They seem to be okay. Are you with me? But anything to do with Baal, it's like, get rid of it. And I mentioned last week about the Asherah poles and, and anything to do with any other idol. Um, actually, I should have wrote that down. There's, an, there's a scripture as well in, in uh, Numbers which talks about God, uh, as in Yahweh, executing judgment over the gods. And you think, hang on a minute. If, if, if he's going to execute judgment over the gods, they can't be just stone. Because why would you bother executing judgment over a stone pot? It would have to be something who... In, in essence, was somebody on a reasonably equal plane to actually challenge. And it, it says that he was going to execute, but we'll look at that when we get into here, I think. But anyway, um, so these, cult, uh, these cultic centers, which were for El in Bethel and um, Haran, Shechem, and the places that I mentioned earlier, in the end, suddenly are all accredited to Yahweh rather than El. Now, don't you find that interesting? I, well, I do. Anyway. Anyway, um, how we just wrap this up is basically to say that there are so many um, ways that we can look at this. We can either say that what was in the beginning was wrong and then they got to what was right, or they actually, it was a, um, what, uh, an evolution of understanding moving into the next phase, or we can actually de decide, like the, the Yahweh did, that basically it was just, um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say now, I've lost my plot, never mind, I've lost it, so anyway, I'm, I'm done. That's, that's all I've got to say. <laughs> and I'll leave it to Anthony now to, <laughs> to dig me out. <laughs> nothing, nothing to dig out. Um, yeah, I know this is a journey, but this is interesting. We've, de we've determined to go down this line because 
um, it's so easy to throw out little, you know, tidbits of, of, of truth, you know, well, God is love and that's wonderful. But all this is really important because um, to hold our own in understanding the development of what ultimately became Christianity, because remember, this is not Christianity and Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? Understanding this will help us to piece together this wonderful thread that comes through here that leads us to Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that next week, but there's two, two things I want to note. If, as I was raised, the Bible is this, infallible and inerrant in the way that it is taught, we have a problem. The problem we have is that God does murder babies. He does kill all living things. He does take off the picture anybody who doesn't agree with him. Now, my, my evangelical background makes me even uncomfortable about that, but if it's infallible and inerrant, and that's written in the text, then God is a baby killer. So we have to wrestle with these thoughts. Now, that's why I'm much more comfortable where I stand now with this. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. In other words, it's God's way of communicating with us a story that does not stand in its own right. So you read a scripture and God destroyed the Canaanites because basically they didn't agree with them. You take that in its own right, you have a God who murders his enemies, then along comes Jesus and tells us to do the opposite. So we have a problem. But it's not a problem, it's only a problem if we don't understand some of this journey that's bringing an ancient people through a process of evaluating and understanding who is this, and I'll call him the divine, okay? So, what's interesting about this is the question we'll ask next week, is the God of the Old Testament the God of Jesus? That's the question we're going to wrestle with next week. Is the God of the Old Testament the God of Jesus? Or is the God of Jesus found within the Old Testament, but much of what we see in the Old Testament is not the God of Jesus? That's what we're going to wrestle with next week. Now, in order to support that, there's one other thing that I want to say, and then we're through. This whole business that starts when Christianity let's call it that, begins to emerge out of the message of Jesus and, and this thing called the ecclesia, this group of people begin to spread. And then we get all these um, uh, bishops rising up who then meet together and of course, you know, long story short, we finish up uh, with these councils of which one, the Council of Nicaea and so on and so forth, where we come and establish a canon this is what the scripture is and this is how you interpret it. Here's what I want you to consider. Before this time, people like the pagan Romans were killing Christians. Once you reach this, it's now Christians killing Christians. I'll let that sink in. So now what we have, we then have the word Heresy, from this point, becomes a very key word in the development of what we know as Christendom. What is heresy? Heresy is if you don't exactly see it the way we bishops who got together have decided it, we, in God's name, will persecute you. We, in God's name, will kill you. We, in God's name, will burn you at the stake. We in God's name will exclude you and, and, and the word comes in which is a church would excommunicate you. That's all happening from the church, in the church, by the church. How many of you think something went wrong somewhere? So what we have to wrestle with is in all of this, it's not an issue of this is not reliable. The issue is within the inspiration of this, it's given of a revelation of who God is not so that we might find who God is. And that revelation comes to its pinnacle in, in Jesus, in the Word made flesh, in the incarnation. So we're going to talk a little bit next week how this, how this shifts 
and affects our thinking as we move from the line of what is being determined by people to be the Old Testament into what has been determined to be the New Testament, where all this with. So I definitely want Chris to come back and wrestle with some more of the, of the um, you know, the, the um, uh, interrogation of, of some of these things. But I want to throw that in so we've kind of got a, we've got a float that's going on in there that says, ah, I begin to see why this is so important because most people have one of these as the God of Jesus. And all of these have an agenda. So we have to understand what Jesus meant when he talked about this person introduces another name, which is... So we have another concept, which Jesus has to use to distinguish the God he's talking about from the God that they thought that he was talking about. And that becomes the distinguishing name, Father. So we'll wrestle with that a little bit next week. I, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it's kind of stretching your test in you. Um, you know, whether you've caught 5%, 10%, or 100%, uh, that's not the issue, because I told you last week, um, in, in learning, we have conscious learning and subconscious learning. Conscious learning is the bit where you say, I get that, I understand that. Subconscious learning is the bit that you don't realize that you are understanding, but you don't know how to communicate or assimilate that yet. But what happens, you hit environments and suddenly it goes, oh, because you subconsciously are learning. So I say that to encourage you because some of you think, you know, phrase some people use, on oh, my head's spinning. What you don't realize is that subconsciously, this is having an impact. And as we put the pieces together, like a jigsaw, the picture emerges. As we join the dots, just like in a join the dot, you begin to see the picture. Where before it was just dots on a page, now you suddenly realize it's forming a picture. So I uh, encourage you to be back again next week. And thanks to Chris for uh, all that research, you know. Um, and I can't promise as much as that next week. But So, okay, so I bless you in Jesus' name. I bless you. Whoever this God is who is in here, and, and I think I know who he is. I think we can define that. That God, we want his blessing, the blessings of heaven above and the blessings of earth beneath to come on you. The blessings of the one who Jesus called Abba, who Jesus called Father, who loves his enemies, forgives his enemies, blesses his enemies, saves his enemies, heals the sick, opens the eyes of the blind, accepts the excluded. You see, there's, there's a revelation coming through here that is within here, but most of the time it's lost within all of that stuff that's going on. We'll talk a bit about that next week. So be blessed and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.